0: you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22. I've met several guests this morning. I know you've been welcomed, but for those of you who are guests, we're walking through the book of Jeremiah verse by verse. We come today to the 22nd chapter, and it always amazes me as our efforts to remain committed to biblical exposition seem to line up with exactly where we are as a nation and as a people, we've certainly taken some time this morning to pay homage and honor toward men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice. And anytime we dwell on that, whether it be Memorial Day weekend or Veterans Day, we think about the state of our nation, the state of our country. And of course, Jeremiah is a statesman, a statesman prophet who is preaching not to just one synagogue, he's preaching a message of prophecy to his beloved nation. The book of Jeremiah, of course, is the recorded prophecies of the prophetic preaching of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was given a difficult task. His task is to deliver bad news to the nation. Bad news about God's judgment, not because of God's anger or wrath or lack of mercy, but because of years, not just a few years, generations of Rebellion, of disobedience, of wickedness. And so God is bringing forth judgment through the form of having an outside nation conquer Judah. Now, the reason I say Judah, and you may think Israel, is I remind you that after the first three kings of ancient Israel, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, the kingdom split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's called Israel, and the southern kingdom's called Judah. The northern kingdom fell in the 700s B.C. The southern kingdom held on. Uh, They thought of themselves as unconquerable. They saw themselves with immeasurable confidence because they housed Jerusalem and the temple. And yet, we find out that in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, marches in and completely destroys, annihilates Jerusalem and the temple. Now, historians don't argue about this. Archaeologists have proven this. Jeremiah's words are proven true by what we dig up and what we see. It's Jeremiah's job to preach during this time and explain why the judgment is coming. Now, this is not new for many of you who've been on this journey with me for several months, but we're in a sermon series within the book over the last few chapters, or last week and the next few, called Lost Leaders because Jeremiah begins to focus on the failure of the last few men who were supposed to be leading Judah, who were supposed to be leading the nation. In fact, failed leadership is all around Jeremiah. We know there's an epidemic of failed leadership in our world. Society as Jeremiah knew it morally and spiritually was disintegrating. We know that we see our society morally and spiritually disintegrating. We cannot take the Old Testament passages about Israel, about Judah, and drop them as a one-to-one comparison to modern-day America. That's not good biblical interpretation, and it's certainly not good theology. But we can see so many parallels because the thing that filled Judah up is what filled the United States of America up, people. And people, though they're separated by generations and culture and language, at the heart, people are people. And we have great capacity for good, But we also have the ability to sin against God due to the sin nature we're born with. And unless we are in a right relationship with God, that sin nature always wins out. So when we crack open a book like this, it's wrong to read into it every nationalistic theme that we see in the Old Testament and decide that we can one-to-one lay that on our modern-day context. For example, every Christian in every nation today should study the book of Jeremiah because it is the word of God. And every, na- every Christian in every nation is tempted to take the teachings of the book of Jeremiah and apply them to their nation. Whether they're living in China or Zambia or Great Britain. And so it's very important for us to make sure we understand what does God's word say to all people at all times through what he did say to his people in ancient times. We come this morning to Jeremiah chapter 22 and I want to preach to you a message simply entitled Count the Loss." Yesterday, me and my sons and one of my son's friends were changing a tire on a trailer on the side of the road because it seems as though every fourth time I hook a trailer up, something goes wrong trailer tires are notorious for going wrong, especially if you don't use your trailer every day. They dry rot, pressure changes, and trailer tires, nobody wants to overpay for them, so they're not overmade. So I'm just south of the campus here and we've got the trailer jacked up and here comes a man whose yard we were parked in front of. He's walking his dog. He walks around to talk to us and he strikes up a conversation. He's an elderly man, his dog is on a leash and he says, "Well, sorry you had a flat." I said, "Sir, no problem. We've got it taken care of." He said, uh, "Well, I, I uh, I'd be glad to help you, but looks like you've got a us, Yes, sir. And, and and I noticed he didn't have an accent like mine. Most of you don't. But his was really really strange. You know, you know those people. Those people live up north. Those people. Some some of you are those people. We have a quota. We allow a certain number in. And then, and then I noticed his Marine hat. I said, "Where are you from?" He said, "Well, I'm from Virginia. It's Not quite as far north as he sounded." He said, "I'm from I'm from Virginia. I'm retired, a Marine. Moved down here because my my son's nearby. My wife, I care for her. She has some dementia." And uh, he liked. He wanted to talk, and so we were visiting for a few moments. And I said, "Hey, listen." uh," We started talking about church and. I'm going to invite you to church. Hey, you want, you know, and he says, uh, he says, well, uh, uh, yeah, we talked. I said, thank you for your service on this weekend. And he gently rebuked me. He said, this weekend is not about my service. That's Veterans Day. Now, I know that. And he was not disrespectful. What came to his mind was all of his buddies that didn't get to grow old and retire. And it mattered to him that he clarified to me, hey, this weekend's about counting those we lost, not thanking those who served. Jeremiah in chapter 22 is really counting the loss of leadership. And if you can count to four, you can understand this chapter. For brevity's sake, oh, who are we kidding? For clarity's sake, I've simply outlined it, one, two, three, four. And when we examine this, here's the question we have to ask. What can we learn from lost leadership? Not so much loading our critical bullets and shooting at current leadership, but first and foremost, looking into our own life and asking the question, I am a leader, and I am a follower, and you are both. You have somebody you're leading. It might be a newborn. It might be a teenager. It might be the men and women who answer to you at your job. I hope and pray at some point it's the children you serve in our children's ministry, but you have a capacity of leadership in your life no matter what position you may assume. And I promise you that in addition to the leadership God has called you to, you're following somebody. By, by default, in, in, in actuality, you're following me this morning, in that you have chosen to come, whether digitally through the gift of being online or here physically, and to set under, we say that, to set under God's word. And so you are practicing the spiritual discipline of submission, submitting to God's word, and of course, Submitting to the person who's communicating his word. Now, you should measure anything I say in this context with the truth of God's word. I'm not allowed to come out from under the authority of the word and speak into your life. But I'm one of many, many people in your life that at some point and in some season and in some set of certain circumstances, you will follow. And so, it's important to count the loss that happens when leadership fails, the first thing I want you to see, though, is rather positive. Starts with the number one. It's the one call for all those who lead that permeates God's word. You and I live in a day where everybody's talking about justice, fairness, equity. And I encourage open and honest conversation about these issues. I discourage you from believing that this is something new or that man created true justice. Justice permeates the Bible. In fact, God not only is just, it is from the characteristic of his justness which manifests itself in just this, that we even get the concept of what it means to treat other people justly. As Jeremiah laments in chapter 22, he starts as he often does with God's standard, this one call. Look with me in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah. Most commentators believe Jeremiah was up at the temple praying. Can't go down to the house of Judah unless you're up above it. So Jeremiah is with the Lord, he's communing with God and he says, I've been told to go down to the house of Judah, to the king's house, to the palace, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. So God is speaking directly at the primary leader of this nation who sits on the throne of David. Of course, we know that's the throne that Jesus will fill eternally. You and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Now, listen to the call. Here it comes. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow nor shed innocent blood. So this is God's call for anybody in leadership, whether they're in national leadership, political leadership, military leadership, spiritual leadership, You can easily make the application by studying the full breadth of Scripture, the body of work from Genesis to Revelation, that God's desire is that when we're given a measure of influence over people, we are to, and I love the fact that it's an active sentence, do justice and do righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Now, he explains what those look like. He doesn't just say do justice and do righteousness because We're prone to interpret that as to our own preferences, our own leanings, but look what happens. He says in the second part of verse three, do justice and do righteousness, and here you go. How do you do justice? You deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who has been robbed, and how do you do righteousness? And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So doing justice is this belief that people should be treated with equity and fairness. And then, when you take the belief of doing justice, the Hebrew word, it's kind of an interesting word to pronounce, mishpat. When you take that word justice and you then turn it into behavior, what does it look like? Doing what you believe. Most people don't push back from the idea of justice. In fact, I don't meet people who say, you know, I really think you ought to treat people unfairly. I, I really think you ought to discriminate. I, I really think you ought to take advantage of the poor or the fatherless or the widow or the innocent. Most people in their right minds don't feel that way in the the area of belief. It is behavior that becomes the struggle. And I love the fact that he says, here's what you do. You do deliver victims. You do deliver victims. And here's what you do not do. You do not hurt or harm the vulnerable. The unborn, the elderly, those who cannot fend for themselves. Not those who won't provide for themselves. Those who cannot provide for themselves. Very important biblical distinction. If someone can provide and they won't share the gospel with them, they need a heart change. If someone cannot provide for themselves, share a meal with them, then share the gospel with them. This is the way that we approach this idea of justice. Now, there are some Christians who run around saying we need biblical justice and not social justice. Again, there's a lot of nuance there, and at some point, you get into an ontological debate. Here's the point. God doesn't categorize things as we tend to do. God says, if I'm just and I treat you justly, treat your neighbor justly. In fact, when you take that word, that word justice and that word righteousness, it's really captured well by Tim Keller's quote on the subject. Look what he says. These two words roughly correspond with what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Now, don't get lost. Let me show you what that means. Rectifying justice means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of untrust treatment. Now, what's the implication there? That some are going to be wronged and that some need to be helped. So, so that's the primary way justice is carried out or the rectifying way. But, but the rectifying way is really in response to a need for more primary justice. Primary justice is behavior that if it was prevalent in the world, would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else in other words there would need to be no justice system that punishes criminal if there were no crime if there are no crime then no one is oppressed no one is a victim And so God says, in as much as influence we have, if someone is doing wrong, they must be held responsible and accountable. And if someone has been wronged, we should do everything in our power to deliver them from being wrong and see justice prevail. This is the job of leaders. Leadership, whether it be in our nation or any other nation, especially on the political level, cannot be asked to solve all society's problems. It is not the government's responsibility to solve all of society's problems. It is the government of Judah and all governments that follow in an effort to live out the Judeo-Christian values that many have set themselves upon, especially in the Western world, to encourage justice, to enforce the law, to help those who cannot help themselves, to help the helpless. This is what God cares about in his word, and therefore, this is what leaders should do. Now, I know it would be real easy for you to make a list or me to make a list of people we see in leadership who aren't doing that. Uh, I'm not opposed to you thinking critically about leadership, but let me just ask a question. Is there any injustice in your life? You say, oh, what do you mean, pastor? No, sir, I pay my taxes. I'm here at church on Sunday. Do you treat the waitress later today the same way you treat me? The guy doing your yard. Do you have the same compassion and empathy for him as you do your boss? Again, relationship and context determines often how we relate Certainly, there are levels of intimacy I have with different people. I'm close to some people, extremely, extremely close to people in my life that are my family. And so, therefore, they get an extra measure of my devotion and my love. This is biblical. This is expected. But one of the enemies of the cross is that some of the very same people that fill churches just like ours and sing with passion and listen with great intensity to the pastor's sermon walk right out the door and mistreat people because you suddenly believe they don't deserve the respect that respectful, respectable people do. And when we begin to apply this to our own lives, I got a feeling that many of you passed the test. I see so many of you that are kind and gracious and help those who are in need. But my contention to you, as I've wrestled with this this week, is that there's always room in my life to be more just to be more fair, to find somebody who's vulnerable and be an advocate for them. This is God's call. One. Two. Outcomes for their leadership. Look what verse 4 says. Jeremiah continues. This is from the word of God. For if you will indeed obey this word, then, it's an if-then statement, There shall enter the gates of this king, of this house, kings, notice the plural, lineage, preservation, who sat on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But look at verse 5. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself. You know why God swears by himself? Because there's no other authority to swear to any higher. I swear by myself. I can't swear by myself. God can swear by himself. I make an oath to myself. There's no one else above God. Who is he going to swear to? I swear by myself, God says in verse 5. Declares the Lord that this house shall become a desolation. It's real simple. Obey God, preservation. Disobey God, desolation. Now again, I think it's important that you understand biblical history. But just for a moment, drop that truth into your own life. I know for me... Parts of my life that I've aligned with God's will, I've seen him bless immeasurably. The parts of my life where I stray from his will, stuff dies. Relationships die. Ability to sense his spirit is quenched. Opportunities pass by. This is simple. It's exactly what we talked about last week in Jeremiah 21. You get to choose life or death. In a world full of gray, God is a black and white God. Now, I recognize there are some nuances in Scripture. I, I recognize that there are parts of Scripture, a very few, that, that Christians can lovingly agree to disagree on, but the vast majority of the testimony of God's Word is real simple. If you will obey me, I will bless you. Now, we know that obedience to God does not earn salvation. We, we know that obedience to God doesn't equal perfection. One day it will, when I'm removed from this sinful body. But obedience to God is really an outflow of relationship with him. And by the way, make the connection. When I am in a deep relationship with a just God, what am I more likely to do to my neighbor? Be just. These are the two outcomes. And now we come to the meat of the chapter, one, two, three. Three examples of failed leadership. There are three kings recounted in Jeremiah chapter 22. For your clarity's sake, I'll put them on the screen. Here are their names Shalom, he's also called Jehoaz. That's Josiah's son. Jehoiakim is Jeho- Josiah's second son. So, Jehoiakim is the younger brother of Shalom. And then, Jehoiakim, I know it's real simple. Jehoiakim, who's also called Koniah, is Jehoiakim's son. So you got brothers, and this is the son of Jehoiakim. Now, why does this matter? Remember that I told you Jeremiah prophesied during five kings. Some of you have lived through many, many presidents, more than you would like to Recount. You ever notice that whenever we come to a presidential election or a midterm election, we're told by leaders, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Well, to some degree, that's true in that we can't repeat any of the ones behind us, though we'd like to. And we have no guarantee of the ones coming. So, to that end, yes, it is. But every election seems to add this intensity, this urgency for the heart of our nation. Well, imagine Jeremiah prophesying over the span of not elected presidents. (laughs) Jeremiah was not in a democracy. On paper, it was supposed to be a theocracy. God was supposed to be in charge, and God even warned them, if you put a king in front of me, it will not go well. And they insisted, so as a loving father does sometimes, he gave them the experience to teach them the consequence. In fact, one of the reasons there's so many failed kings in the Old Testament is to create a moan and an ache in people's heart for one good king. Could you just bring us one king that gets it right? And by the way, he did. He did. A king that is good and just and merciful and gracious and kind, but a king you do not want to cross. The first time this king entered the world, the king I'm referring to as the eternal king of the line of David, the root of Jesse, through the lineage of the Messiah promise, this king entered the world, of course, as the baby of two peasants on the outskirts of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethlehem, Bethlehem. But the next time he comes, he's rolling in with an entourage, riding in. There will be no humble death of a servant king. There will be a tremendous death of his enemies. The king is coming. The king is coming. And the good news about that is when I get discouraged, I remember God has not called me to follow a baby in Bethlehem. I don't follow a defeated, dead crucifix. You won't find any in this church. You won't ever see me wear a cross with a body on it. I don't even follow an empty tomb. I follow one who sits on a throne. He is a king, and to know the king means to know what it's like to live in the tension of wanting worldly leaders to match his justice. Jeremiah began his reign under Josiah, who was the last good king of Judah. The word of God was found and read. Novel idea. Somebody explained the word of God to Josiah. And Josiah repented of his sin and led a revival in Judah. Sadly, as is often the case, the revival was short-lived. And then four wicked kings came. Last week in Jeremiah chapter 21, Jeremiah gives us the final king, King Zedekiah. So in between Josiah and Zedekiah are these three really bad examples. Let me just highlight a couple of their failures. Look what the Bible says, beginning in chapter 22. When we get down to about verse 10, we see this. Weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly from him who goes away, for he shall return no more to see his native land. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, there's that wicked king number one on the screen, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, and who went away from this place, he shall return here no more. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there shall he die. He shall never see this land again. So there was this idea in the ancient world that to live honorably meant to be buried honorably. If you've ever visited the tomb of the unknown soldier, you see this amazing display of how our country chooses to honor men who have fallen, women who have given the ultimate sacrifice. And we recognize that even today, at times, it's years between the time when families are reunited with the remains of a loved one. And one of the things that they want to do is to give that loved one an honorable burial. We've all seen the processional as the dead bodies of fallen soldiers are all floated there at the Washington airport. And there is a detail of men trained specifically to honor that loved one by how they handled the casket and how the burial is handled. So we still understand this tradition. It is a tragedy to hear of a family losing a loved one and doing no memorial, no funeral, no time of recollection and celebration. And so for kings in antiquity, this was a big deal. And Jeremiah points out the contrast between the death of a good man like Josiah and the death of these wicked men. We know Jeremiah mourned Josiah. The Bible tells us that in the book of Chronicles, the scriptures refer to this. Second Chronicles 35, 25. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. Now, this same Jeremiah said, Don't grieve, Shalom. He's never coming back. If you go to the end of the chapter, if you flip over to verse 22, you get that third king, Coniah. Listen to what it says about Coniah. Is this man, Coniah, despised a despised broken pot? You know what a broken pot's good for? Nothing. Did your mom ever tell you you good for nothing? Did you ever have a coach tell you you're good for nothing? Anybody ever looked at you and said, you are worthless? They probably didn't mean it, but they meant the way you were acting in that moment was Worthless. We know it's very important for children to have a sense of self-worth. Jeremiah looked at Coniah's life and he said, no, there's not even a sense of self-worth here. He's like a broken pot, a vessel no one cares for. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into the land they do not know? Oh, land, 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 so important. Write this man down as childless, verse 30. So we see this idea of a limited legacy. Let me show you one more thing. Look in verse 18. We're bouncing around for the ability to look through the whole chapter. Look at verse 18. They shall not lament for him saying, "Ah, oh, my brother or oh, my sister. They shall not lament for him saying, "Ah, oh, Lord and ah, oh, his majesty. Now listen to how these kings will be buried. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. You know what ultimately Jeremiah is saying? I thought one commentator said it really, really good. In talking about the difference between a living sinner and a dying saint, envy a dying saint, pity a living sinner. Envy a dying saint. Be grateful when someone is called home to be with the Lord. But when you see someone living as a dead man, living as a dead woman, don't be angry, but pity them. Jeremiah is lamenting over the lost leadership of men who missed the mark. I saved the worst for last. It's in the middle of the chapter. Look at verse 13. Jehoiakim was Jeremiah's worst enemy. We know that verses 13 down to verse 17 is about Jehoiakim because verse 18 says, therefore says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim. So this is God's response to the way Jehoiakim had been acting. Now I want you to listen to how Jehoiakim acted. Verse 13, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Does that sound like justice? Who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms. Who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, which was very expensive then and now it's very expensive. Lumber is so high, I'm thinking about selling my house for parts and painting it with vermilion, which was a very expensive type of way of staining and painting the cedar silver. Now look at what God says about this. He sees a man who's stepping on and oppressing the poor, making them build his house and not paying them their wages. Look what he says in verse 15. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? God says, do you think that having the title And using your position to expand your family's wealth on the backs of the people who are actually doing the work in your nation? Do you think that makes you a king? And then God does something very powerful. He reminds him of his father. Look what the Bible says in the second part of verse 15 did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? In other words, your dad did both. He survived, he thrived, and he did what was right. Verse 16, he judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. So God's saying, I'm not asking you to lay down your life the way I'm going to, I'm not asking you to die a soldier's death. I'm asking you to step up and lead by serving your nation and putting their interests in front of your own. Right here in Jeremiah, what a word for us today. And and then God says, and let me tell you why your father got it right. It's not that he was smarter than you. It's not that he had some gut instinct you didn't have. It's not that in and of himself he was more righteous than you or more wicked than you. Here's why Josiah, your father, got it right, Jehoiakim. Here it is, and this may be the crux, the crown jewel of the chapter. Look what he says in verse 16. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Listen to the question. It's rhetorical. Is not this to know me? God says, isn't that what it means to know me? me, declares the Lord, but you, verse 17, have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. So here's the contrast. Your dad, Josiah, he ruled, he reigned, he prospered, and the people prospered, and here's why. He knew me. You, you may be sitting in my throne, You, you may be in a position where people call you king, but you, Jehoiakim, you don't know me. So you have become the God of your life, your stomach, your own ideology, your own views, which have been a melting pot of mixed reviews of false gods have come to inform your worldview and therefore you are ruling as best in your own eyes. You do not know me. Don't think you're the only person to feel that way. Don't think you're the only person that longs for a world of lost leaders to come to know the Lord. Now, based on your New Testament, you ought to pray that they come to know the Lord. But don't think we're the only people who have ever lived in a time where we see our nation separate more and more and more from very basic values that we affirm. As Christians, we do not demand that our nation accept and force Christianity down anyone's throat. In fact, we would oppose that. Our Baptist forefathers believed strongly in the separation of church and state because we knew to trust Christ was a personal decision based on the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the response of the sinner to the grace of God offered unto him according to his foreknowledge, his election, and his predestination." So we would never mandate from a political place, from a point of military power, from a point of social power, from a point of financial power, from a form of economic power that every person claimed to know Jesus. No, 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 that is not biblical. But it's also unbiblical to deny the connection between a nation unraveling and its leaders being lost as a ball in high weeds. Jeremiah says, To know God was to know justice. You cannot know God and know his son and ever line yourself up with the killing of an unborn child. You cannot know God and know his son and ever put yourself in a position where you oppress those who are attempting to better themselves, willing to work, willing to pay taxes, willing to love and care for their families. You cannot know God and know his son without recognizing that the sin of the human heart requires for there to be law and justice, kindness, and respect. And if there is any situation where any person abuses that power, they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But so many women and so many men who serve our communities in law enforcement, in the military, and in other ways do so out of two places in their heart. One, they want to provide for their families just like you do. And two, they want to help their fellow man. And when we As believers, line ourselves up with justice. We line ourselves up with Jeremiah's God. One call, justice. Two outcomes. You obey God, preservation. You disobey God, desolation. Three failed examples as we saw here. And finally, four characteristics of the people who followed this lost leadership. Look with me as we close in verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out. Lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abiram, from all your lovers who are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds and your lovers shall go into captivity. Then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil. Oh, inhabitant of Lebanon. He's talking about Judah, the whole nation nested among the cedars, how you will be pitied when pangs come upon you, pain as of a woman in labor. So right in the heart of this chapter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah prophesies to all of Israel. This is where we see verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out, tell the whole nation this. You followed these men. You went down their path with them. And because of that, what snuck into your life? What happened? Well, we see it. It's really simple. First pride. God said, I spoke to you and you would not listen. And it was that way from your youth. And then you were isolated. This is why the scripture says in, the verse, in verse 22, the wind shall shepherd all your shepherd and your lovers shall go into captivity. He's not talking about a woman in a man's life or a man in a woman's life. He's using the romantic analogy of lover to refer to Judah's false, shallow alliances with the surrounding nation. By the way, when Babylon came and Nebuchadnezzar came, he conquered everybody. And so all of a sudden, Jerusalem, who had put its faith in Egypt, who had put its faith in the surrounding nations, the surrounding nations that had given wholly and willingly these false gods, all of a sudden, Jerusalem stood alone and isolated. And then, what does that mean? It means people are confused. Look what the Scripture says in verse 22. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds, so the people you think will lead will be led away by the wind. Then you will be ashamed and confounded. Does this sound familiar? You ever looked at a nation and went, what happened? What happened? God predicted that's what happens. When people are prideful, they become isolated, then they become confused, and then what's the reaction of others? They're pitied. Look what the Scripture says in verse 23. O oh, inhabitant of Lebanon, nested among the cedars, how you will be... Pitied. Pride. Isolated. Confused. Pitied. If you go to Camden, South Carolina this morning, you'll find a Quaker Cemetery. It's beautiful. If you were to go this weekend, you would be a part of an interesting story. November of 1944, a young man from Camden named Frank Bose. Jumped in front of an artillery shell, saved the life of the private behind him. The private was named Anthony Grouso, and this is a picture of him with his family. He's 96 years old. Through some research, a man working on a book figured out the connection between what was then private Grouso and Lieutenant Dubose and told him he knew where his comrade. Who had saved his life was buried. At 96, Anthony Grousel told his family, we're going down there to visit that grave. I want to go and say thank you. Doing that this weekend in Camden, South Carolina. And when I think about people like Frank DuBose, who in a moment's twinkling of an eye jumped in front of an artillery round knowing full well it would take his life to save this man's life. A man who married and had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A man who got to live his entire life. A man who has fought and struggled with PTSD. A man who the writer of the story said began to feel a sense of relief that he finally knew the grave he could go and visit to honor this man. I think about just the opposite of that list. What's the opposite of pride? It's to be humble. What's the opposite of to be isolated? It's to be connected. What's the opposite of being confused? Well, it's to be clear of convictions. And then what's the opposite of being pitied? Well, it's to be admired. I admire men like Frank DuBose. You know something? You're creating a list with your life. Look at those two lists. Pride always leads to isolation, always leads to confusion, And then people look and go, I just feel sorry for her. I feel sorry for him. But humility, oh, it makes us connect with people. Our church, discipleship, love, family. And we have clarity. It's not my life to live. God, what you want me to do? And then we live a life that people admire. You're creating a list by how you lead and who you follow. Write a good one. Let's pray.